Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we are here to kick off our election boot camp. Can you do that again? Did you like that? (laughs) Sorry, it's a one-time thing. I'll do the little hands in the air, too. But we're also calling this Ask All the Questions, because we've got questions, we've got answers, and we want to hear from you. So speaking of questions, we're real pumped to be here, as you can tell. So pumped. (laughs) Because this is the episode, since the last three have been just so uplifting, talking about Birmingham and domestic terrorism and all the things. This is really going to cheer us up here, folks. But really, actually, I kind of had jaw-dropping, like, oh, crap, we're really going to have to talk about this, and this is getting real good here. So let's do it. Yeah, so we're going to start today's episode, which is, as we just talked about, our kickoff episode for our election boot camp series, which our working title for is How the F Do I Make Sense of What is Coming in 2020? I know it's the long working title, but it's catchy <laughs> with a series of quick questions. So we're just going to start with some questions, kind of like speed dating without any of that getting to know you crap, because that's how we roll. We like do some drumline music and then we hit you with a sledgehammer. Boom. Here it is. Let's go. All right. So ready? Let's do this. I'm scared. What are you going to ask me? (laughs) Remember those nice questions that we asked each other about our summer? This is like the opposite of that. All right. So, Sarah, when you hear the words 2020 election, what are the first few words that come to mind? (laughs) (laughs) You can do it in emojis. Just kidding. Okay. I had like the gut punch. Okay. That's a good one. Then I had the Oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. Good one, too. What if he gets reelected? That's not a one word thing, but that was like the OMG. Yeah. How about you? Unavoidable dumpster fire, which is, I think, my word. Remember, in the start of this year, I was like, my word for 2019 is grace. My word for 2019 is really dumpster fire. I was fucking wrong. So, okay. Anyway, I think we share those sentiments, though, that there's a lot of shit happening. That is pretty scary. And I want to make it clear that I don't think this is a partisan thing. It's not a Republican, Democrat, unaffiliated thing. It is really what my moral compass and also my understanding of what legality is and what the role of our administration and what leadership should do to lead a country. Like That's where I'm coming from, not from any political party. Same. And I think, you know, we don't purport to speak for anyone except ourselves here. No parties, no nothing. But yes. All right. Question two. What is your gut reaction to the presidential election? So be honest. Do you shut down? Do you want to ignore what's happening? Are you scared, excited? (laughs) All the things. Okay. You know, I am watching it a little bit. It was interesting to see if there sometimes is somebody coming up against Trump in the Republican Party, but sometimes not. And then on the Democratic side, it's like, oh, my gosh, like right now we're in primary season. So just to be clear, because I think some of the stuff we're going to talk about today is really time sensitive. It is November 6th. So we're basically almost exactly a year out from our 2020 election as we're recording this episode right now. So. There was like a ton of Democratic candidates. There's a lot of stuff going on. And yeah, I kind of want to freaking bury my head because, well, I take it back. I want to bury my head on the candidates, but I want to really dive into being clear about what I stand for before I go into that so I can vote for the candidate who really aligns with, I believe, is good for this country. Mm, That's an important distinction. Yeah. Not just for me, but for the country. Yeah. What about you? I know you're the opposite. You were like, give me all the things. Let me read all the things. 
I do love facts and reading. Yes, I think that's very apparent right now. I really like that. Where's my nerd emoji for you right now? <laughs> I'm sure you're going to use that about 10 times during this episode. But I do. I like laws, too. I mean, call me crazy. Was <gasps> that my yawn? Was that my yawn? I know. I think you just fell asleep over there. Okay. Yes. I like procedure. I like laws. I like all that crap. And in case we weren't clear, I like feelings. I like relationships. I like... I feel like when you say that, it makes me like an emotionless robot, which... (laughs) Also, I'm kind of dumb, but you know, it's okay. There's a middle ground that we actually live in and it's funny to poke fun. Yeah. No... I'm nervous. I think that's the overarching thing because I read a lot about it. Um, but then I get periods of time too where I'm like, I don't know. And it's an unknown in a way that while I still feel that we have a lot of power to change the course of certain things, like there's so much unknown out there. And I think as we're, you know, as you mentioned, we're recording this on November 6th. We are about to head into impeachment, a lot of impeachment stuff. And so there's so much out there that we don't know. And along with laws and rules, I like knowing what's going to happen next. So that part to me is really difficult. Yeah, I understand the need to control, especially because as moms, when you basically have no control of the little people in our lives, it's kind of nice. But anyway, that's a total aside. I had some stuff with the kids lately. That's just, you know. (laughs) Anyway. So can I ask you a question? All right. What do you think is the most important issue at stake in this election? I was hoping you would answer this first so I could piggyback off of you. You know, this one, as I was listing out all of ours that we're going to talk about, I couldn't pick one because I think there are so many. I think immigration is a huge one, how we look at our citizens and how we look at people coming into our country. And are we fundamentally changing what our country stands for, depending on who we vote into office? To me, that is a huge, it's more than a policy change. It's an ideological change. And that's big. But there's so many, like, it's hard to pinpoint one, because as a woman, I'm really nervous. Like, I'm really nervous about everything. Yeah. It's interesting you said that about an ideological change because that reframed for me. My husband took me on a coffee date the other day, which was super fun. I'm like, we haven't sat out at a coffee shop having like no kids coffee forever. And I, of course, was not like, let's just talk about fun stuff. I was like, so the direction of the United States. And he's like, are you serious right now? As you do over a latte. (laughs) But we started talking about this book that we both, I couldn't make my way through it, but he finished it. It was called Collapse. And it was about the rise and fall, most importantly, of huge empire, the Roman Empire, you know, like just a number of them. And I kind of was saying, I feel like maybe we are right now at a stage where depending on how many people use their voice and make changes, we may be at that point where we are like great grandparents. And we're like, we remember the United States when like the downfall began. And it's interesting you said that as an ideological shift, because maybe that is what it is. But I felt like it was, you know, the US is so used to being in power, and the number one power in the world. And there are a lot of competing powers creeping up. Well, maybe not a lot. But you know, there's a viable chance that we are tanking ourselves as a country right now. And we are actually at the critical turning point, the beginning of that right now. But so given that, what do you think is the most important issue at stake in this election? I have to say women's rights. I mean, it's something that I feel really, really strongly about as a woman. I feel like 
it's always, I mean, I guess I'm a feminist, right? Like I'm not a man hating feminist, but do I believe that given all opportunities, like that I am capable and able to do all the things and I should be given the same rights that men are given? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm not saying that men and women are the same. Anyway, I can digress, but (sighs) especially as a mom of two girls, yeah, I'm leaving behind this world for them where God forbid something happens to them and they're not allowed to take care of their bodies and it's up to the man to decide for them. Like I'm raising them to be, like you said, you were raising when we were interviewed on the Mom is in Control podcast, you had said, I'm raising men, the men that I want my boys to be. And I'm raising women who I want to be fully capable and autonomous and able to make their own decisions. And so for me, it's even, I'm doubling down because I need to leave the world a better place for them. Yeah. It's partly why we're doing these conversations here on the show, but like that is number one for me. And I mean, it's interesting that immigration, of course, is important. One of our parents each were immigrants, right? But yeah, that for me, hands down women's rights. And then there's a lot of other stuff I agree with, too. Like we'll talk about criminal justice system. Income inequality is huge for me, too. Education, actually, I think is really critical that we have not actually discussed much about yet. I mean, interest first and then, you know, immigration, impeachment, a lot of stuff. Yes. And if you heard impeachment and you like zeroed in on that word, like I have been, we will be talking about that more in a second. But we think, you know, and in researching this and writing this and when we were talking about this is that what is so interesting, what we keep talking about on this podcast is that people can be directly impacted by the same issue and have very different viewpoints about that. Besides what we've discussed above and, you know, what or before, you know, talking about this part is that one of the biggest issues that has been in the news lately impeachment, among other things, is how the United States has been dealing with other countries. I mean, there's Ukraine, but more on that later again. So if you're someone who produces goods, one way that you likely see this in this country right now is in the form of tariffs. And to be perfectly honest, if you ever buy shit here, you also see it too. You don't see it in the direct way that a producer of goods does. But as a consumer of goods, that cost is being passed down to you as well. But, you know, it's a much more gradual cost. And so for farmers and others who depend on product sales for their livelihood, this is happening really fast. So and when I literally Googled this exact question, by the way, like my Google search history is nuts now. So I'm sure like you are so getting targeted by the government. I Google the most random shit and some might think it would be a little subversive. But anyway, so in Googling this, you know, we found two directly opposite opinions from people who were in the exact same situation. And so we wanted to discuss that today. And this is okay. So I'll start here and then I'll add my commentary in a moment. But here's one guy. Christopher Gribbs, who is a soybean farmer from Ohio, whose family owns and operates 560 acres of land, told CNBC back in August that he will not be voting for President Donald Trump again in the upcoming 2020 election, just about a year from now. And he said, I couldn't vote for him. I have to protect my business. And he said on it was a show called The Exchange on CNBC. So he had voted for Trump in 2016, along with more than 75 percent of rural farmers in the Farm Belt. And he says it. He's like, I was a Trump voter. I voted for the president. But now he's pushing back against President Trump's trade policies and the retaliatory effects on American agriculture. And when he was talking about how the president has disappointed him on trade deals, he said, it certainly frustrates me. He's lost on trade in three different ways. So here's the thing. Farmers are one of the biggest victims of the U.S.-China trade war. With China officially pulling out of purchasing U.S. agricultural goods, American farmers are losing their fifth largest customer. 
So to put that in number sense, the U.S. had $9.2 billion in agricultural exports to China last year, according to the Department of Agriculture. That's amazing. Not an insignificant amount, right? No. Mm -mm. So he's selling this stuff. So he's a soybean farmer. So he told CNBC in 2018 that his soybean prices dropped by 20% due to the trade war. That basically means they used to sell for a local cash price of $10.50 per bushel, and now they're selling at $9 a bushel, which is right at the cost of his production. So he's saying, we've lost our biggest export market, and that was China, and that's weighing on prices. So that, I mean, all of a sudden, you're selling stuff right at the cost of production. You're not making that margin anymore, Mm -mm. right? No. So you're basically sort of at a flat level. I mean, that is a huge difference if that delta is 20% and that is the delta between production cost and actual profit, right? Yeah, you're working for soybeans, literally. Yeah, literally. (laughs) So this is like where I kind of went, oh, we're screwed. But (laughs) despite the fiscal damage this trade dispute has caused, so many farmers appear at this stage still to support Trump. The Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture did a recent survey, and they said 78% of farmers believe the trade war will ultimately benefit U.S. agricultures. And this was back in July. It's like, how is this going to benefit you? The price that you just lost 20%, it's not like it's going to come back. You're not going to, like, beat China. And also, if in case you haven't noticed, China's very prideful. You don't mess with China. Yeah, I think... We've seen that directly. I mean, the NBA being one direct example recently where they China has a lot of power in production, in consumption. And so when I saw that statistic, I was just like that. My head exploded. I was like, I just have a hard time. You know how logical I am, too. I'm like, logically, there are two things that do not connect here. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is why Gribbs makes sense, right? He says, no, I certainly wouldn't agree with that survey. Like, he does not think that the trade war is going to benefit agriculture. So that was back in July. Then, in like, President Trump tweeted that he's going to impose a 10% tariff on an additional $300 billion of Chinese goods starting on September 1st, which happened. So basically, at that point, 87% of textiles and clothing from China... And 52% of shoes are going to be subject to import taxes. I mean, check your labels on your clothes that you're wearing right now, right? Where are your clothes made? Yeah, that is going to affect a lot of people. Even if you think that this tariff and China and all of this situation is sort of at levels beyond you, that is a direct-to-consumer cost at some point. So then coming up in a month, on December 15th, the administration is scheduled to impose a second round of 15% tariffs on about $160 billion of imports. So basically, if that happens, but anything from China is going to be covered. So these are the things that prompted China to retaliate by halting the U.S. agricultural imports, which really is ramping up this trade dispute. Yeah. So Gribbs sounds like he's thinking about what happened in his life, how it's impacted him since 2016, and he's making a decision. He's saying, you know what? This doesn't make sense to me. I will not support him based on the policies that are in place that are affecting my livelihood. Mm-hmm. But based on the survey in July, not everybody is thinking that way. No. So let's meet that person, (laughs) shall we? Farmer Luke Ulrich. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Your guess is as good as mine there. Okay. I apologize for mispronunciation. He says he works at least 12 hours a day, almost every day, tending to his crops and cattle in Kansas. 
So he anticipates a fairly decent corn and soybean crop this year, but his expenses are so high and the prices he's getting for his crops and cattle are so low that he's budgeting less than $25,000 in income for the whole year. What? That's basically like a little over two grand a month in income. Yeah, that is while working 12 hours a day almost every day. Yeah, it's not like that's like his passive income source here. He is out there in the fields. Yeah. Like, and if it was just him, I believe, I mean, I know we did the thing about the school lunches and we looked at the poverty levels, but I believe that meets the definition of Mm -hmm. low income poverty level. Yeah. Right around there, right? So it sounds like he's married. I mean, he says, we more or less live off my wife's income and she carries the benefits, which is another thing, right? Your income and you have to pay for medical care and all this stuff. So he says, if it wasn't for her, we'd probably be sunk. President Trump is partly to blame for the low grain prices because China retaliated against his tariffs by closing a giant export for his soybeans. And so Ulrich says, I'd probably be lying if I said some of us aren't scratching our heads every once in a while. I sometimes wonder if Trump didn't bite off a little more than he could chew. Again, like when I was reading this, I was just like inside my head, I was screaming. And that is the censored version of what my reaction. (laughs) So, yeah. On top of that, the Trump administration hurt demand for his corn. Remember, that was the soybeans before, but now his corn by allowing dozens of oil refineries to sidestep their legal obligation to use billions of gallons of corn-based ethanol and gasoline blends. So the demand for corn went down. Yeah. So he's basically losing in soybeans. He's losing in corn. Yeah. But he's not mad at Trump. He loves Trump's hands-off approach to environmental regulations. And I think the word hands-off here is interesting because I think there's a difference between being hands-off, blatantly disregarding, and actively standing in the way of, which I, you know, I think we could substitute in certain words. Yeah. Didn't we just pull out of Paris officially or or not? Yeah. So there's a... We should have an episode just on environmental stuff because my brain is exploding. I do care about that. That actually is another thing I care about for the election because that's ridiculous. Yeah. Climate change. And we're at a like global freaking turning point. And it's not like me turning off my lights. It's corporations have to be held accountable to making the best decisions because my lights on and off aren't going to make the same difference that like all the factories and Amazon buildings and I mean, all the things that are out there, you know? Anyway, I digress. Yes, I'm familiar with lights on and off in the wildfire area of PG&E. Oh, yeah. How's that going for you? Those environments. Oh, yeah. The climate change and pretty not obvious over here. I don't know what that is. So luckily, knock on wood, seriously, because you've had family members affected by the fires. Yeah. You know, it's no joke. People are losing their homes and lives due to climate change. So, okay. So he loves Trump's hands-off approach to environmental regulations and... I didn't even realize it was this much, but he appreciates the $28 billion aid package that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has distributed to compensate farmers for what they're losing in export sales. So we have suddenly all this money as a government to go, here you go, here's $28 billion. We're going to try to this trade war, come up with this money that we apparently can't use to fund anything else. Yeah. And give the farmers money. Wouldn't it just be easier to not have those tariffs in place in the same? But I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate over here. Right. And I'm sure I know there's a lot more that goes into it that I do not know about. And if you are one of those people who knows a lot about it and wants to give us more information, please do. Right. Because we don't. We can like parse things together based on new stuff. But there's only so much we can know. But we're doing the best we can. 
So Pat Westhoff, who directs the Food and Agriculture Policy Research Center at the University of Missouri, he says that farm bankruptcies are up sharply this year, which is no surprise, and that trade aid payments are crucial. That makes sense. I mean, he's saying every dollar counts right now, so it's a difference between profit and loss for many producers. So in theory, with these payments, the president has mitigated some of the problems he has caused farmers. Basically, this polar, Sarah Wyant, who's the president of AgriPulse Communications, she says, and having talked to farmers for years and years, she goes, the farmers have been sticking by him through it all. She's concerned, though, that she said this is not going to hold forever. When some of them start to face either it's Trump or going out of business, they're not going to be still voting for Trump. Right. In theory. But so many farmers are keeping their hopes up. They keep telling the director for the commercial agriculture at Purdue University, two-thirds of the 400 farmers he pulls each month look for a happy ending to the trade wars. Like, he basically says, this is Jim Mintert. He is the director of the center I just talked about. But he said, I wouldn't say that we've seen any evidence of people becoming less supportive of the administration's trade policy. That's not to say farmers aren't concerned. They're definitely concerned. And Trump has tried to ease those concerns by promising progress on trades and pledging to force oil companies to use more ethanol and the $28 billion in market facilitation payments. But I don't know. John Harath, he's the news director at Farm Journal, who talked to more than a thousand farmers every month. He says that Trump's popularity slumped a bit in the summer, but bounced right back to a favorable 76% the week the House launched its impeachment inquiry. I wonder what like the tipping point really is then, you know, and I think we're going to talk about that a lot, but... I think optimism is really great as a quality overall. Mm -hmm. But I think there's when you see something that is very clearly happening that directly affects your livelihood, your business, where in what do you vote on then? What is your, you know, the driving Mm -hmm. support then? Well, and it's interesting, you know, is it more about political identity and ideology? Like we talked at the beginning, we weren't speaking as Democrats, Republicans or unaffiliated We were just talking about the issues right now, but politics are really, really personal. And Chris Larimer, who's a poli-sci professor at the University of Northern Iowa, says that farmers are having to square their economic differences with Trump with their partisan allegiance to him. And that must be, you know, when you're talking about who you are as a person and if you it's easy to label it makes more sense of the world when you have labels on people like, you know, in the mom world, we've talked about working mom, stay at home mom and that whole like third model of motherhood and flex mom. Like a flex mom. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for putting the plug in for my book there. <laughs> no, but really it's an old book. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but anyway, this idea of labels, it makes sense for us because the world is complicated. But when you're voting strictly according to the label without thinking of the issues. And as we've talked about in the past, when organizations change their allegiances, right? I just, and when people shift their allegiances by sticking with just the partisan stuff, you're really making it hard for yourself, but it's such a core part of so many people's identities. And when you have forces pushing in both ways, like you're really, really hard partisan identity and this really, really hard economic survival side, it's a question of which one breaks first. Yeah, I think that's a great point because there is a division and it is so personal. And I think what, you know, and going back to that question at the start where we were asking each other questions and what's sort of the overwhelming emotion that I feel and nervousness is, you know, way up there. And I think it's because we have typically in, you know, modern societies and in our democracy or constitutional, you know, republic, we have lines, right? And we don't 
cross certain lines, moral or otherwise legal. But I think what has happened here, and, you know, this is a nice segue into impeachment, which, I, you know, I've been just dying to talk about this whole time, that the lines keep moving and we keep being okay with that as a society overall. And so that's what makes me nervous, because I think here, you know, we have definite, you know, a loss of a living wage or, you know, huge economic livelihood issues. And, you know, it feels like a dumpster fire. I'm really going to just embrace that. But, you know, at what point do we cross some line that people, you know, drives people to be like, this is a really bad decision or this is a great decision or something. And that line and where that line is and the legality of where you are on that line is really interesting, has really come to light with this impeachment stuff. And who knows what is happening right now when this episode is released. But one of the questions we wanted to ask in this episode was how do people see President Trump in the light of the fact that he might be the closest to impeachment of any modern day president? So let's say that, you know, there are a lot of tariff issues. He still has a strong base of support, right? Especially among the farmers. But so we went to look for other measures of support. Or not. So an October Gallup poll, which was sort of held in the first half of October, found that Trump's approval rating remained flat at 39% compared with 40% in the late September update. So it's sort of on the lower end of the range that's been recorded for him in 2019 so far. 37%, which was the low end coming in January during the government shutdown and 46% being the high point. So he's sort of still in that range. At the same time that the poll was done, 87% of Republicans, 34% of independents, and 5% of Democrats approve of the job Trump is doing. I mean, that is a huge swing, like 87% of Republicans, and then you've got 34% of independents and 5% of Democrats. Like, that is such a partisan split, right? Right. And how are people not reflecting, like, have we lost as individuals our moral Compass. Have we become numb? I mean, I look at things systemically and has like social media and our phones and our insulated worlds really disengaged us from the reality that we're in and how this might actually affect people. Like, how is there that big of a swing? How can you possibly draw a line that you're talking about right now when you have people seeing the world so differently or not even seeing it at all? Right. And so, you know, when you're looking at this in the aggregate and we looked at some numbers as well, Around the time of when we were recording this, it was just about a 50% of the people who were polled who said that Trump should be impeached and removed from office, while about 46% said he should not be. So that's flipped a little as 52% to 46%. And that was the opposite of what the Gallup poll found in June when they asked during the special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. So it was slightly less for impeachment, but that's still, you know, close to 50%. And, you know, what's interesting and what we wanted to look at, too, because, you know, I love some history is, you know, we faced impeachment a couple of times before in the modern era, not like back in the 1800s. OK, yes. Question in the back. <laughs> Can you give an easy description of impeachment? Because I know you're going to talk about like Bill Clinton because you just said modern presidents and impeachment. But what is impeachment itself and how can you still like there must be two parts to it because you can be impeached but remain in office. Well, you have to be impeached by both houses. So you can be impeached by the House of Representatives, but then that vote, like a lot of other bills and measures, has to go to the Senate. So the Senate has to vote to impeach you as well before you're actually removed from office. 
And, you know, there have been two instances in modern times where Nixon and Clinton and, you know, you and I remember Clinton. We weren't around for Nixon. But, you know, Nixon, we never got fully through the impeachment proceedings. So we've never really seen how that goes in modern times. Nixon resigned when it was clear that the House was going to vote to impeach him. So he didn't even get to the House vote. He was like, peace, I'm out. And then Clinton was actually impeached by the House, but the Senate voted to keep him in office. So, But the level of support for Trump being impeached and removed is well above where it was for Clinton and higher than it was for Nixon and all but the final poll before he resigned which is saying something. So support for impeachment and removal of both former presidents was 19% in Gallup's initial reading for each. And American support for Clinton's impeachment and removal did grow from there, but never came close to majority level. So it maxed out at about a third of the people surveyed, about 35%. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And you said earlier it's 52% of people now think Trump should be impeached and removed from office. Yep. Holy smokes. Yeah. So more people want to impeach Trump than Nixon or Clinton. And I don't know, it might be because of the whole, you know, foreign government interference in American political system thing, because, you know, we have an ideological shift about how we view other countries. But this whole thing overall is really confusing and I think overwhelming to a lot of people. One of the articles that we looked into when we were researching this episode, which was an October 19th article in the Washington Post, which we will provide a link to. If you email, 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 sign up. Yes, sign up for our list. You can get that link. We thought it was a must read because it looks at one small congressional district and we will talk about congressional districts as well in our next episode. So be sure to listen to that. That is fairly representative of just about every other congressional district out there. And it highlights how little people know or want to know about what's going on. They basically interview a whole bunch of people who are sort of half paying attention to, you know, the impeachment hearings or proceedings or anything related to impeachment. And I really loved this one quote from this woman who was sort of listening, the half listening to Fox News, or she was catching snippets on the radio, driving to her job, caring for special needs kids. So she's hanging out outside the bagel bin on which I love anyway, that title on Staten Island, talking to the reporter and her summary of where they were in impeachment at the time. Remember, this was October 19th is. So they said he was on the phone with some guy because he wanted to get dirt on Biden. But I don't know if they got any proof of that, she said, taking a drag on her cigarette. And it was something else, too. I don't know. Rudy's doing it. Rudy called. That's Rudy Giuliani. But I think that is sort of the level of knowledge that a lot of people have about impeachment. It's very high level. You know, new transcripts are getting released every day, which contains information that was previously kept secret from depositions, which are a legal proceeding where you interview people about things that happened. But, you know, I don't know, Sarah, are you like, you know, and we talked about it, you're not who has time to really read all of the transcripts or, you know, you. okay, besides <laughs> me, all right, you make time to read all of those things. Direct question. No, just <laughs> no, I don't. And I also filter my news because it is so darn depressing and being in the world of positive psych, I'm very selective about my news sources. So I get my news source once a week in this magazine, aside from when I occasionally decide to, you know, ding my happiness and read through the news headlines on my phone and read some articles. But yeah, I think there's information out there, but I'm sure the same information, like you said, and like we talked about with the soybean farmers, the same information will be filtered totally differently depending on your view. Yeah. Or maybe you're just going to push that to the side, right? Which because, you know, in researching this, we discovered that there is an 
not insignificant amount of people who don't really seem to care about any of that or are still willing to vote for President Trump, despite all of the stuff that is coming out in the impeachment hearings and discussions about it. So in mid-September, 94% of Republicans opposed impeachment. 94%. A month later, after the news about Trump's faithful phone call with the Ukrainian president, and after the House Democrats formally launched an impeachment inquiry, their views are essentially unchanged. Even with all those revelations, like, yes, he actually had this call, he actually said this, 93% of Republicans remained opposed to impeachment in mid-October, according to data released right around the time that we're recording this from the Public Religion Research Institute. Of all Republican voters, two subgroups stand out for their unwavering support of Trump, those who primarily get their news from Fox and white evangelical Christians. So pause for on that. Just take that in. So it's about misinformation on Fox, unless you believe that Fox is telling the truth, in which case you're saying that that is the truth, and white evangelical Christians who also have their own set of truth, like the belief. So this is where it's getting to me, because when you break it down like that, at least the, the I thought there was a separation of church and state on purpose. And you really made a good point about there being like your fear being this line that nobody like we're getting so numb to certain so many things that we're pushing this line, pushing this line, pushing this line. And it's like, when is enough going to be enough? I think we have way past that line. And there has to be a moral code. There has to be legal. The rules are there for a reason, even some stupid rules which I don't agree with, you can't just be like, eh, I don't feel like following them. Like they're there for a reason. Right. Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned that, that, you know, where does that line end? Because for some people, and this was what was made me most nervous, is that that line can be pushed as far as you would like, because there's a significant portion of Trump's Republican supporters who are very open about their belief in his infallibility. 42% of Republicans said there is virtually nothing the president could do to lose their approval. And do you remember when Donald Trump made that comment about how he could literally kill someone on the street and people would still vote for him? And I mean, this is exactly what's happening. Among Republicans who cited Fox News as their primary news source, this number was even higher at 55%. And Trump's most steadfast supporters are also most likely to condone his behavior. Again, no line. Nearly two-thirds of white evangelicals said Trump has not hurt the dignity of the presidency. By contrast, majorities of all other religious groups, all other religious groups, said Trump has damaged the image of the office. It's We've come a far long way since Mad Men and the sense of class and decorum, right? Well, except they totally sexually harassed a whole bunch of women. Oh, that's different than now? <laughs> no, they also didn't like anyone who wasn't like a white dude. Oh, is that different? Yeah, we've come a long way. So <laughs> come a long way. Oh, man. But honestly, that is really, really scary because that says to me that people are detached. That if you can be okay with somebody doing anything, especially somebody who is the leader of your country, you either don't understand enough, which ties into my need for the education system to be revamped, and then you watch news sources that promote stuff that, quite frankly, like they portray it in a way like you, ugh, the communication is so important. And I think the heads of news stations should be seriously held accountable for what they're doing to this country, including all reality TV and everything. I mean, I think that ties into education lack there. I mean, there's just so much... I love this idea. It's unrelated, but it's kind of related. Like we talked about voting with your wallet. 
And that becomes more and more and more important to me because I think that so much of this world, so much of our country is driven by money and people will do whatever it takes to get the ratings and the followers that that seems to be the way to get to their belt. So like, don't watch the news stations you don't agree with. Like, I don't know. I don't know. That is so terrifying. And we've had an experience where people will write us and they don't want to hear what we have to say. They just want to tell it. Yeah. Tell their perspective. Yeah. There's no sharing, growing, nurturing, changing perspective because 42% of Republicans says there's virtually nothing the president can do to lose their approval. That freaking blows my mind. So even if he is impeached and, you know, right now we don't know what's going to happen. Some Americans are totally cool with going down with him, which to me, I don't know, maybe I'm just overly lawyering this whole thing. It seems like there are some moral standards, though, that we should have as a country, as individuals, as people, as humans. And speaking of humanity, as a side note, on Twitter, Trump referred to the impeachment proceedings as a lynching. And I think you know how we feel about that. But just to be clear, there's absolutely no fucking way that this is a lynching. Here is Ida B. Wells's description of a lynching. Quote, the men who make these charges encourage or lead the mobs which do the lynching. They belong to the race which holds Negro life cheap, which owns the telegraph wires, newspapers and all other communication with the outside world. They write the reports which justify lynching by painting the Negro as black as possible. And those reports are accepted by the press associations and the world without question or investigation. The mob spirit had increased with alarming frequency and violence. Over a thousand black men, women, and children have been thus sacrificed the past 10 years. Masks have long since been thrown aside and the lynchings of the present day take place in broad daylight. The sheriffs, police, and state officials stand by and see the work done well. Three human beings were burned alive in civilized America during the first six months of this year, 1893. Over 100 have been lynched in this half year. They were hanged, then cut, shot, and burned. Not a fucking lynching. So, going into 2020, what's going to move the needle and for who? Yeah, I think, you know, what are the questions that we need to be asking right now in 2019 and into 2020 to be able to make educated decisions and not just vote? on party lines, because we want to think about the issues. We want to be smart about knowing what those issues are, knowing who stands for what, and then making educated decisions based on that. Yeah, that's where we're going next. So, you know, buckle up and join the ride. I mean, let's ask these tough questions of each other, of the people we know. We'll give you some questions and our takes on some of the answers. We're going to break the election mess wide open. And here are two questions you might want to ask yourself as we talk about all these issues. One is, what matters to me? And two is, what am I going to do about it? Okay, so as you know, I love sports analogies. So this year, the Yankees manager, Aaron Boone, who's generally a pretty chill guy, got pretty incensed and went viral, actually, after an umpire who was a fairly junior umpire 
threw out a player who was banging his bat against the top of the dugout. So he marches out there. He like lays into this umpire. He calls his team, you know, their animals in the box, which got their whole playoff animals in the box t-shirt into play. But his line and my favorite line is when he just looked at this guy and he's like, look, you have to tighten this shit up. And he's like standing and clapping. So he emphasizes every word. That's how I feel about this election season. We just need to tighten this shit up. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there.